name is Amanda Newland Davis, and I run Oklahoma Cold Cases along with my partner Jen. At Oklahoma Cold Cases, we try to shine light on the cases of the missing, murdered, and unidentified that otherwise don't get much media attention. For the last four years, we've existed solely on Facebook, sharing the posts of the missing, murdered, and unidentified of Oklahoma. But this past year, we've branched out and started a database in which we list all of the names of every cold case that is in Oklahoma that we are currently aware of. You can find us at oklahomacoldcases.org. You're listening to Sirens, a true crime podcast brought to you by the Sirens Network. This podcast contains explicit content, so listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely the views of the hosts and do not reflect the views of affiliates, associates, or sponsors of this podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. A local case that's been cold for almost 29 years is now the focus of a true crime podcast. Good evening. Thanks for watching. I'm Shay Rossi. Sarah has the night off. 26-year-old Sean Jones, a mom of two, was found dead near a pond in Henrietta, New Year's Day, 1994. As the case approaches another anniversary, there are new efforts to look for missed clues. Fox 23's crime and safety reporter Abigail Dye joins us live with a big interest in this case. Abby. Shay, this is still quite the mystery, and I do have to give a shout out to one of our digital journalists, Abby Devera. She did a ton of legwork to get this story on air tonight, and she got her hands on this old newspaper clipping. As you can see here, this is Shauna Jones's family. They are picketing and protesting the investigation years ago when it was still ongoing. Police originally determined Jones's death was an accident. But that's something that the family never believed. Still to this day, they believe that Jones was murdered. <laughs> the chilling sounds of traumatic memories. <laughs> Miracle Lee walks through her childhood home, haunted by a decades-old question. Who killed her mother? Who killed Shauna Jones? Miracle is Shauna's daughter. She was seven at the time that her mom was taken from her. It's a case Raven Rollins has come to know well. She hosts the Sirens podcast. This is Sirens, a true crime podcast. And the mystery of what happened to Jones haunts her too. It's been 29 years. This is a cold case where on New Year's Day, 1994, Shauna left home around 2.30 in the morning. Uh, she went to switch out her boyfriend's work van with his personal truck back at his uh, family's place of business. Uh, and she also was going to take home the babysitter. She says that babysitter made it home, but 26-year-old Jones never did. Old Henrietta newspaper clippings show her body was found near a pond and her death considered an accident. But this autopsy says there was a possible bite mark on her arm and she had a broken neck bone, calling the death violent. Roland says just one piece of many that makes her question. There's no way. Mm -hmm. You know, and then you start to wonder, 
Why is no one advocating for this? Why haven't I heard anything about this? Why isn't it national news? Mm -hmm. Rollins walks with Miracle through her mom's mystery and hopes the podcast will encourage anyone with information to help close this case. You know, instead of sitting around and wondering it to myself, I'm just trying to ask, mm -hmm. you know, I'm just trying to ask people. This podcast episode is set to drop on New Year's Day. Coming up at 10, we will hear from Miracle Jones's daughter as to how she feels about this new light shed on her mom's case. Covering news that matters, I'm Abigail Dye, Fox 23 News. Welcome to another episode of the Sirens Podcast. Um, today, I have with me my co-host, Professor Mandy McNeely. Hi, guys. I always forget to say, I'm Raven. All right, moving on. Um, so today, we are here talking about an Oklahoma cold case. Um, we seem to have hit a niche with these Oklahoma cold cases. Um, we, When I started this, I was like, no, we have to have a case that's absolutely completely finished. Um, from start to finish, somebody has gone to jail, you know, like we're going to tell those stories and those stories are, are also need to be told, but I don't know that Daniel Fur case was one of our very first ones and it haunted me and we're actually actively still looking into it. Yes. Um, we've been looking into it with, with Chelsea and, and Gary, yes. Gary Perkinson. And, um, I don't know these these are the ones that kind of stick with me. And these are the ones that I think we need to kind of push to the forefront. Well, they need to be, they, they need to be brought yeah. out. They need to be, especially the ones who are not in the media, um, like Daniel Fur. I think there was two or three articles. Um, I don't remember ever seeing that case at all in like the news, news I, stories, I have um, never like on TV. Uh, and, I think the last article that, that he was in was in like 2008 or 2009 maybe. But, you know, this case that we're going to talk about today, Shauna Jones, this happened in 1994, early, early, early 1994, New Year's Day. And the last time it was in any sort of media um, before, you know, the last couple of months was 1995. Yeah, that's a long time. That's a long time for this case to go cold. You know, they were lucky enough to, uh, one of the news stations around here took an interest. And I I love that. You know, they, they did an article. They covered the case on the news. And that's wonderful. But today, you know, we're actually going to talk about the entirety of this case. And later we actually have Miracle, who is Shauna's daughter, on with us. And she's going to get to tell her side of the story and advocate for her mother. Um, and that's really all we want to do is advocate for these people who no longer have a voice to advocate for themselves. And try to get some movement in these cold cases. These, you know, cases and these family members that have fought for years and years and years just to get their family member's case brought into the public mm -hmm. because it hasn't been one that's, you know, been on, you know, 
any kind of television or anything. Yeah. And then, you know, it's great when the news can pick it up and they can get a couple minutes, but they have to talk so fast. I know. And there's just so much that they can't say that they want to say. I know. So it's great that they can get a chance to do that on a platform like the podcast. Long form. A long form um, platform. And I think there's something different about... Even if you, if we look at the Freeman Bible case, they've been on tons of documentaries yes. and you sit them down and you, you let them speak, but then they're at a certain point. And I think that they don't get to fully show people what it's like to be them. You don't get to feel that emotion when it's so short. Right. Um, they don't get to tell the full story their way, the way that they want to tell it. Uh, And I am just really thankful that we have a platform that we can allow that for. Um, So with that, today we're going to be talking about Shauna Louise Jones, and we're just going to jump right into it. Okay. Today we have a special guest with us. I have Miracle with, with us here today in the studio. And we are going to be talking about her mother's case. Hi. Hello. My name is Miracle Lee. I am from Henrietta, Oklahoma. I was born and raised there, so I went from pre-K all the way up to graduation. You have a sister, right? Mm -hmm. I do. I have an older sister. Her name is Christina Gell. She's a couple of years older than me. Um, she lives in the same town that I do. Which is no longer Henrietta. What, and that, no, We're going right. to leave it at that. Let's talk about your mom a little bit. Um, but the first thing we want to do is we want to get to know who she was as a human. Yeah. Um, what was she like? And you were, you were seven. I was seven. When this happened to her. Yes. Your sister would have been. She was really close to being 10. Her okay. 10 was 25 days later. Oh, wow. She turned 10. Wow. That's really close. Okay. Yeah. So, and then two months later, I turned eight. So, my mom, my beautiful mother. The times that I remember, there's a lot of dancing and singing and smiling and a lot of happy times. Um, There was a lot of down times, too. You know, my mom kind of, I don't really know her upbringing between her mom and her dad, but she had some hard times. You know, but she was all about me and my sister. Like, we were literally with her all the time. And there were some things that my sister seen that, you know, I didn't see. So, every person that I would talk to, every female was, that's my, that's my best friend. She's been my best friend. Like, no matter who it is, no matter if they didn't see her for, like, years, that's my best friend. She's my best friend. She told me everything, you know. So... That right there means she opened her arms to anybody and everybody. You know, she was not judgmental whatsoever. I talked to a lot of men that knew my mom. Some that she's dated for a short time or some that she was just around a lot, you know. And it seemed like they all had respect for her. They all wanted to take me in, you yeah. know. Even... Even after. You're, you and your sister don't have the same dad? No. Um, but neither of them were in the picture, right? They weren't at that time. Um, when my mom was taken from mm-hmm. me, the whole who was my dad was out the window. Mm-hmm. Now my, my sister knows who her dad is. Mm-hmm. And he was not in the picture at that time, but he was around. 
Mm. I just don't know. I think he was in the army during that time, and so he was doing his thing and did not want to mm. take on that responsibility, I believe, is what was the, happened at that time. Yeah. But, yeah, same mother, two different dads. So your mom, and I, I think... You and I have talked a lot about your mom. Um, I was like, tell me everything. With the tight jeans and the, like, the wranglers and the two-stepping and the dancing. At the time was non-blondes. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. What's up? You told me that. Yes. You told me that. Yes. And when, see, her best friend Chrissy at the time told me that. And uh, I remember I remember listening to that, and that's kind of when all of the vision started coming back, or the memories coming back of just dance. She was, we were just dancing all the time around our house. Like that's awesome. It was so much fun, and she went out a lot. I didn't know she was what she was doing, you know, but I, I knew she was going out a lot because she was getting dressed up. But it mm-hmm. was always a fun time watching her dressed up because it wasn't just hers. It was it was her and her friends, her girlfriends. So they would make a whole thing about it with the hair and the hairspray. The hair oh, yeah, because that, oh, yes. that would have been like the 80s, early the 90s. Aqua. Yeah. Aquanet. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Hey, my mom's hair did not move. <laughs> <laughs> It looked the same the next morning. <laughs> and she's tw- she's 26, okay? So. If the bangs moved, they went all the way up together. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. They always had, you know, she always had music on. And just, it seemed like the, the females that she did have around was just, had that same uplifting energy. Yeah. You know, we were just always a part of that. And then she would leave and go do what she needed to do and then she'd come back home so did she like to go dancing is that what she oh yeah like to the two-stepping and stuff like that Mm -hmm. yeah yeah she line dancing Mm -hmm. yeah i can see that she taught me the boot scoot and boogie yeah yeah um (laughs) that's fun (laughs) that's yeah i think it was mainly her and my uncle her brother Mm -hmm. i'm amazing on the dance floor like he could just bend you around in circles and i think that they could do it so well that i mean they just enjoyed it yeah. And so, and of course, you know, she loved dressing up and showing off. So, oh, her yeah. going out in these tight jeans and these lace up cowboy boots. So, you sent me a statement, which will, I'm going to read that later um, from the, the babysitter, your babysitter yes. at the time. But there was like one little part in there when she was like, she got me a, a curling iron, like a cordless curling iron for Christmas. And she was like teaching her how to use it in the parking lot. And yeah. like, did her make her hair like right there in the parking lot? I was oh, like, that's oh, fun. Yeah, yeah that's I don't, fun. I don't remember that, but I do remember the battery operated curling iron. Yeah, I do remember yeah. seeing that. And that was big <laughs> stuff back then to have the cordless oh, yeah. iron. Yeah, on the go beauty. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. go in your night bag. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You sent me this picture of your birth. Oh, yes. And I, I love that picture. Believe it or not, I didn't get to see that picture until I was 24. What? Really? The only pictures that I did see, the three main ones that I sent you, which would have been of my mom, my sister, and I, mm-hmm. and then my mom and her best friend really close together holding something. Mm-hmm. And then there was one other one. All the other ones I didn't see until I was at the age of 24. Wow. 
So like there's one of me and her and my sister on a four-wheeler that looks like we're about to have some fun yeah. and she's ready to, you know, get on with us. And then, of course, the picture, you know, of yeah. birth, me not knowing or never seeing that picture. And then seeing it then, I was just like... That picture makes Aww. me wonder. <laughs> I mean, you may know, you may not know, but I was kind of wondering about your name. Oh, yeah. You want me to tell and you? And if there was a story. Yeah, because there's got to be. There's got to be oh, a yeah. story along with that, right? There is. Um, you want me to tell you the hypothetical stories that people ask me all the time first? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure those get crazy, right? Oh, yeah. My mom. Was your mom a hippie back then? <laughs> um, <laughs> are you working as an accountant <laughs> wink, on wink. a big stage? <laughs> no. No. So, okay. So, my mom, when she was pregnant with me, she had four surgeries. And wow. one of them her appendix being removed wow while she was pregnant why she was pregnant with me wow and so we didn't know if she was going to make it or if I was going to make it yeah and so four separate times because anytime you have surgery yeah and this is back in 86 yeah so then we also have a doctor that my mom was his first patient oh wow wow yes brand new doctor brand new doctor he still lives down there i think in my hometown i I believe it was my papa chico that was like if she's healthy i want you to name her miracle yeah and so we both made it out healthy like i was seven pounds something i don't know the time (laughs) but i was healthy so that's where my name came from that's awesome and i just love that look on your mom's face like uh we did it we did it yeah <laughs> yeah she was probably so exhausted by that time but she did do it she was a strong female I, when I think of her I think of her having kind of a bigger southern accent I don't yeah. know why oh, yeah. I just do I just think of her having this like Sweet. a like a Reba sort of accent kind of just like- this <laughs> she has such a cool smile in her pictures yeah. and mm-hmm. just this big southern accent and just this very just loving, welcoming, yeah. friendly, you yeah. know. That's how I she see her. She did not judge or turn away anybody. Like, she just was that type of person that if she came into the room, everybody gravitated towards her. Mm-hmm. And just, she was like the life of the party for mm-hmm. every time. So she probably had a lot of friends then just from going out with her um, with her brother and probably knew a lot oh, of people. Yeah. So she probably knew quite a bit of people. Yeah. She had just moved back to Henrietta um, at that time. She was living in Tulsa. Oh, okay. So she had moved, I guess, and was living in Tulsa. It got bad in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. And then she moved. Oh, right. You told me about her experiences there. Yeah. 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 So it was just really bad, and I think she wanted to feel the comfort of being at home. And my sister went through that with her. How long was she gone? Do you know how long she was in Tulsa? Not very long, right? No, but then I think it was only eight months that she had been back in Henrietta. Mm. So she was living, we were living with her mom until she got that trailer. Yeah, and, and she, then, so she literally moved back to Henrietta to be in a safe place. Right. To be near family. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was with my grandparents and I think her sister when that happened in Tulsa. Mm-hmm. So okay. I think it was like, okay. We're- and so, yeah. So she was kind of coming back to her safe place. 
when you feel like you can be near family and you can kind of be in what's familiar to you, you people tend to let down their guard a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I do that. I mean, I'm well, I'm guilty of that. When you are in your safe place and you don't end up being safe, that to me is can affect so many people even yeah, yeah. in that community because yeah. mm-hmm. they probably feel the same way. And see, there was another bar in town that she had worked for the owner of, and they, I mean, just everybody loved her, you know? They just loved her. It, she, she was a bartender, She right? was, yeah. um, a waitress, mm-hmm. and then, but she was also working uh, during the week at a, I don't remember what it's called, but she worked with my grandma, too, at the same job. Mm-hmm. She was hardworking. Yeah. yeah. But I never, I think I seen one moment where she just had a breakdown. I could remember flashback of that. But most of it was just laughter and funny, you know. Silliness. Um, I can tell you <laughs> a couple of the memories that I have. We went to a Pentecostal church, I think, with her friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pentecostal churches have really high energy. And I was, you know, I was a kid, so this was probably, I mean, it wasn't, I was still seven. But uh, so we go to this church with her best friend, Michelle. (laughs) Hi, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Michelle. Um, Oh, my gosh. they They did so much stuff together. They were so fun. I love her to pieces, but me and the kids were just running around the whole church. That's mm-hmm. just what the kids were doing. Okay. <laughs> my mom was up front and then we leave. Okay. We're, my mom's cool. Okay. She just, that's cool. That was a great experience. You know, <laughs> she didn't want to tell anybody no. <laughs> so the next time comes around and she's like, hide, hide behind oh, no. something <laughs> and we're like me and my sister's like why it's michelle and i know just stops <laughs> we're like this looking out the window in the trailer you know behind the couch i don't know why we had to go behind who pulled out the couch away from the window <laughs> didn't make sense <laughs> anyways we're just standing there and she's knocking on the door and my mom's going <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? So she finally leaves. And mom, my mom's like, I don't think I can handle another one of those. <laughs> That's funny. And, like, we just laugh so hard. And I've told Michelle this story, you know, because it was just, <laughs> she knew. Michelle knew, you know. It was oh, just yeah. so of hilarious. Of course. That's but, funny. But um, the, the memory of our last Christmas I remember looking in her face about how excited she was. She was having such a hard year. But me and my sister woke up that Christmas morning in uh, 93. And we both had a red bing bag or a black bing bag. And so, like, the theme was red and black. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then she had... Oh, yeah, you were telling me she's, like, all about themes. Yeah. Oh, so then she cool. had, like... Color coordinating and all that stuff. Yeah, it was so... Well, I don't remember who got what color mm-hmm. of what, but I just remember it was a black bean bag, a red bean bag. We had black pants that had some sort of diamond ink, diamonds 
things on the side. Not oh, nice. the jewel, but the fabric looking. Oh. I don't know. Like those, just the like, it's like embroidery or something? Yeah, like. Yeah. The design. I don't know exactly. Oh my what gosh, I called. remember those. You remember the diamonds that mm-hmm. go down the side yes, of the legs and the touch? Fabric. I remember yes. that. Yes. And it I might be that. a different color just or a maybe design. a darker yeah. blue, blue denim or whatever. Yeah. Well, me and my sister, I think we got a pair of red one and a black one. And then we got a pair of red and black tie-up sh- lace boots. And then we got a western shirt that was either red or black. Mm-hmm. So, like, I don't know if we mixed up the red and black or if <laughs> one of us got all red and one of us got all black. I don't remember how that was. I think I did get the red boots. We loved that so much that Christmas. It was, like, the best ever. I remember just seeing her face. Just Did she, like, like make what? you put put everything on, like, immediately? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were sitting in the beanbag, still opening gifts, and we can just put some stuff on, you know? Go ahead and put these boots on, hun. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do that? There's so many, you know, twisted and stuff. It was so cute. That's awesome. I loved it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That, and that's her awesome. favorite things. So, you remember those ceramic plates that were designed so you would get it from, like different states oh yeah oh and they have the different kind of the states all the different yeah. state like bird and all that on it yeah so she collected those and had those you know hanging on her wall those are cool yeah and then she was really bit uh, big into unicorns she was so she had a lot of unicorn knickknacks <laughs> yeah i think is what they call them. yeah <laughs> Knickknacks. Knickknacks. Yeah. She had blankets. You know those touch lamps that you can just touch and it would Mm -hmm. come on? So she had a couple of those. That was unicorns. She was into unicorns. I mean, how how much softer could you be? (laughs) You know? So I just, it's just so cute. She lived a lot. She was born in Germany. Was she really? Yeah. Wow. Her dad was in the army. Did she speak any German? I don't think so. <laughs> Not to me. <laughs> she might have got that. To, she might have noticed a couple of words. <laughs> she wasn't raised over there. That's kind of cool, though. Oh, yeah. My grandma's yeah. from Utah. Her mom's from Utah. Yeah. So they were in Utah a lot. Oh, mm-hmm. I've been there a couple of times. It's gorgeous, yeah. yeah. This took place in Henrietta, Oklahoma, New Year's Day around 2 a.m. 1994. So it would have been 93 going into 94. And Henrietta is a, it's a small town. It's not, it's not near a big city. So you have a lot more rural. It's a very rural community, especially then. It's right on the highway. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are two bigger highways that runs through there so I feel like it's mostly a passer through sort of town for most people anyway um and then you know there are people obviously who live there but most people only know it because they've passed through Henrietta for the most part well and I would say now that I think about it it was more then built up than it is now yeah I think it was and um so I do have a little tiny bit of information from the 2010 census. Um, there was around 6,000 people living there. 
So it's, it's, that's, yeah, it's not very 2010. Big. It's not very big. And I don't know what it was before or after that, but it, it's probably around the same. Like I don't, they haven't really had that much growth there. So that being said, um, if you follow 75 North, you'll run straight into Tulsa. If you go South, I think you run straight into, is it McAllister? Yes, I, be- I believe I so. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know. It's literal, literal small town USA. Yes. So Shauna, who was 26 at the time, was a single mother of two and had been dating a 27-year-old man named Yule Slane. She and Yule had gotten serious and were actually talking about marriage. Yule played in a band at local bars and was actually playing with his band the night of this New Year's Eve party. Um, and Shauna worked at a club called the West Club. It was a bar there in Henrietta. She was a bartender and a waitress, and she was actually set to work there that night that this uh, New Year's Eve party was happening there. So she was working at this West Club, and he was playing at a different bar in town for their New Year's Eve party. So he had, from what I understand, dropped her off at her job and then went to his, I guess you could say job, (laughs) that night. I would say that. Um, I was a musician who played things like that once. So yes, it was a job. Um, (laughs) But yeah, went to play his job at a different location and then would later that night leave his location go back and pick her up and then go home. So she ha- was actually wearing uh, a the clothing that you see in our cover for this episode. Was That photo was actually taken that night, um, the night of this New Year's Eve party. And so she was wearing that pink shirt. She was wearing some blue jeans. She had a large belt on with a large cowboy style belt buckle, um, some lace up cowboy boots, and she, you know, off to work. No incidents that I have found occurred throughout the night. Um, there were some witnesses that said, you know, she was, you know, dancing and having a good time and stuff like that. Uh, it's New Year's Eve. Yeah, it's New Year's Eve. And she was waitressing and she was working. I did also see that there, someone had said, and I think it was Miracle that told me this initially, um, but she had had a shot or something when the ball dropped, like that night uh, with the rest of the patrons. She probably didn't really but she wasn't, do much outside of No, that. but... From what I understand, she, it's not she wasn't like drinking all night long yeah. or whatever. And as a former, also former bar manager, I can tell you that you do not want to give, you do not want to get drunk with your patrons, especially on New Year's Eve. You never know what's going to happen or who you got to kick out. So anyway, <laughs> no incidents occurred that I am aware of, um, either at her party or Yule's party. Uh, after that. So the bar usually closes at 2 a.m. It usually took me around 30 minutes after to close up and shut everything down. Uh, Even as a musician, it would take about that long to, you know, get everything packed up and put away. And so after the bar was shut down, he came and picked her up and they went home. This would have been somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. 
I should also mention that because of all of the musical equipment, and Yule was in a band, and so he actually hauled all the musical equipment um, for his entire band, not just him. So he used his parents' medical supply equipment van to haul all of that stuff to um, to his gig that night. So they were in that van when they came back and got home. So when they arrived, of course, Shauna has two girls, Miracle and Christina. Miracle was seven at the time. Christina was nine. And they were home and uh, they had a, I believe it was, she was either 14 or 15 years old. Now I've heard that she was 14. I've also heard that she was 15 year old babysitter there who had, you know, stayed with them that night. Miracle woke up when she got home and her sister was still asleep. I will let Miracle tell you about that interaction. I remember at some point there was several people in the single wide trailer. I don't know who all was there. You know, of course, I was just focusing, probably playing with my sister or whatever the case may be. She left. I don't even remember what me and the babysitter did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't remember any of that. But for some crazy reason, I woke up when she got home. And I just got up and... Went straight to her, and I wrapped my arms around her hips, and I gave her a hug, and she told me that she had gifts, had toys, you know, the New Year toys for the hat, and the thing that makes noise, and whatnot. She's like, I got you some toys, you know, so go back to bed, and she patted and kissed me on my head, and I went back to bed. Um, I know that there was more people there. Someone was on the couch. I think there was a few people behind her. But I just seen her, you know? Mm-hmm. For some reason, I just seen her, gave her a hug, and I went right back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Did you <clears throat> Did you and your sister share a room at the time? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we shared a room. And she didn't wake up when no. your mom got home? Mm-hmm. So the babysitter needed to be taken home. Uh, it... <sighs> I say it's unclear because Yule never spoke about it publicly. And of course, Shauna is not here to tell us. But it is unclear why Shauna was the one that took the van to go take the babysitter home. There's speculation that because they were both drinking, and believe me, I know what it's like to be a musician playing for a party on a New Year's Eve, like, gig. Uh, People are buying you drinks all night long. So that's a good suspicion to have, is that, you know, he may have been the drunker of the two and didn't want to drive again. So um, that's always a possibility. However, the babysitter did need to be taken home. So Shauna got in the van and went to take the babysitter home. Yule stayed behind with the kids. So the babysitter, her name was Jessica. And she, in fact, has said in several statements, even to police, that um, Shauna did take her home, directly home, from her house to, I believe it was her aunt's home that she was staying at, and was totally fine. Nothing out of the ordinary happened during that time. After she drops off the babysitter, 
Yule had requested that she go ahead and take the van back to his family's business, which was the medical supply business in the center of town because his truck was there and switch out the van with his truck and bring it home with her. It's from that point where she dropped off the babysitter, Jessica, to go pick up the truck that she was not seen. There's not been a report from anyone that's that has stated that they saw her after that. I think I would usually just wake up around 7 o'clock in the morning, mm-hmm. you know. But we would never really wake her up. I think we would just... Let her sleep. Let her sleep. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, like, wake her up because we're watching TV. But I think my sister would get me something to eat or whatever and mm-hmm. just let her sleep. But there's a lot of times, too, that she was in the kitchen cooking and singing and, you know, mm-hmm. in the mornings. So, but after that, I woke up later that morning. I turned left to go down to her bedroom. Her bedroom was at the end of the hall. And it looked like it hadn't been touched. It looked like it did the night before, you mm-hmm. know, where she was getting ready. Everything just looks the same. I walked into the front room and I seen Yule sleeping on the love seat. And I don't see anybody else in there. So I wake him up and I'm like, hey, where's mom? And he's like in her bed. I'm like, no, she's not. He's like, I don't even think he said anything. He gets up. He doesn't run yet. He's just like at a faster pace than normal. And then goes back to her bedroom turns around and runs just straight out the the trailer just runs straight out and I'm standing there you know like the doors open mm-hmm. and the screen screen doors just you know shut I just remember standing there watching him run across that field into the tree lines which then once you pass the tree lines is the main street mm-hmm. into Henrietta right. so but at the time, I didn't know, like, what is he doing? Is he going to get her? Like, why? That was crazy, you know? And it's just me and my sister here. I haven't talked. I had never talked no, to him. never talked that. to him. If there was any question of why she would drop off the van and pick up the truck in the middle of the night, because... Instead of just leaving it. Yes, because, yeah. you know, that was his parents' van. And I think we had... Someone had said that he had a new truck. Yeah. And so he really liked that truck. So he probably didn't want to leave it outside because I think they parked outside. Well, it was right across the street from a, um, from a gas station. And I think that maybe he probably had thoughts that it, you know, somebody could vandalize it or try to steal it or something like that. Cause it was a, it was a 1993 blue Ford F-150 dual cab. Brand new. Brand spanking new. So he didn't want to leave it there just in case something happened to it. Which is understandable. Yeah, and I also think that there were concerns because when you're a um, when you're a musician and you basically have to beg your parents to let you use a van to take all of your equipment to and from, they probably said something like, Okay, but you need to have it home after yeah, you know, you need to put it back right, yeah. right back where you got it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I don't, I don't think there's anything unusual about that if you yeah. think of it in that context. But so, so no one knows exactly what happened after she drops off the babysitter. Everything was fine. The babysitter, Jessica, literally says everything was fine from that point. Um, she wasn't acting strange. Uh, she wasn't acting drunk. She wasn't, you know, like there was nothing wrong up to that point and then 
she just never comes home. That morning when Yule woke up, the first thing he did was that we know of was file a police report about his truck. And I believe the police report was unauthorized use of a vehicle. Like not like it was stolen, but I know who took it and it was an authorized use. Yes. Even knowing that Shauna was missing that morning, he didn't file a missing persons report. He filed this unauthorized use of vehicle report instead. I'm not exactly sure what time that took place, but we know it was fairly early in the morning, probably before noon at least. Well, and it could make you think too that maybe, you know, again, with it being a smaller town, you know, people don't really think anything like that's going to happen. Well, and um, I think I failed to mention that Yule was a, at one point, a reserve officer for Henrietta. And so... He probably knew the paperwork versus, you know, if I file a stolen versus a missing person versus a, you know, um, unauthorized use. What's going to happen? What's going to come of that? I'm not sure that he was super concerned that she was actually missing at that point. I agree. He just thought she went somewhere and he wanted his brand new truck back. Yeah. So then later that day, just, and this is just four months away from what would have been Shauna's 27th birthday. According to reports, around 4.30 p.m. that day, some local children were playing on their property when they noticed a blue truck sitting near their pond in the backyard. The kids then told their mother, who walked down to the truck and found a body lying near the edge of the pond. It's assumed here that this woman flipped over the body um, to see if they knew who it was or if they were still alive, something like that. The reports uh, did show that neither EMS or police were actually the ones that flipped the body. So we're thinking that, you know, when she found her, um, she flipped her over to see if she was still alive. That's when she actually realized that they were friends, that it was Shauna. She called 911. The next thing I remember is my grandma picking me and my sister up and taking us to her house. Mm -hmm. There was so many people coming and going. I remember the home phone just constantly ringing. Tears. Just a lot of people that were just frantic. Nobody knew what was really going on. This was an all-day ordeal. Yeah. You know, and I just remember the best way that I can picture is that I'm standing in the middle of her front room. Your grandma's. Yeah, in my grandma's front room. And just people, it was just like people are just swarming around me and they're all blurry. Like you just, you're just kind of just standing there and things are moving at a fast pace. Mm-hmm. And you really don't know what to think at that time. How long was it before someone told you what had happened? Even though the phone had rang so many times that day and people's pagers were going off, I don't know what it was, but this one ring happened. Mm-hmm. And I was I was standing at, I don't know, she's probably a little further away from me, but I could hear. I could hear what I think I could hear. Like, I really didn't hear, but I knew what was being said. Mm -hmm. That she just 
Like the tone in the mumble or... Yeah, that yeah. she was dead. Yeah. You know, and I, I remember at that time when I just knew what kind of conversation that was, that everything was just taken. Like, I just felt empty. And I didn't know what to say. And I just stood there. When she got off the phone, um, I don't know if my sister was there or not, but I just remember her saying that they found her at this pond. I don't think she ever said out loud if she was dead or not, um, but I, I knew. So there was liver mortis on the abdomen. Now, I know that you guys have heard of rigor mortis. We all know what, well... I hope at this point in your true crime journey that you know what rigor mortis is. Uh, But liver mortis is actually, let me see if I can break this down. So when the blood, when your body stops circulating blood at the point of death, the position in which your body is lying or sitting or however it is that the body is, that is where all of that blood that was circulating is going to flow to. And it will cause what looks like a giant bruise or something. Um, so that's what the, they call that liver mortis. So you know that a body has been lying in that position for a certain amount of time because of the liver mortis. Um, because all that blood pools in that area and it coagulates. So we know from liver mortis that was in the abdomen that she was lying on her stomach for a long period of time. So EMS was dispatched out to the property on a possible drowning, which is what it was initially put out as. When EMS arrived, they actually noted in their report um, that there were two, also there were two footprints near her shoulders as if someone were like standing over her body at the head of her body. Uh, they noted that in their report. It is not noted anywhere else. And I, it is, it's because there were so many people at the scene by the time that, you know, everyone got there um, that they think that, you know, the scene was kind of trampled with and compromised. Yeah. EMS also noted in their report that there were drag marks present from Shauna's body heading into the woods where I guess you could say it looked like someone had drug her from the woods down to her location where she was found at the pond. EMS noted that in their reports. I don't know. I, I do have their names in here um, of the paramedics who worked this. And I just like shout out to those paramedics for being like, okay, this is fishy. I'm going to put this in the report. Well, yeah. For being so vigilant to look at that. I mean, seriously, because that's not reported anywhere else. No. And they are literally the first ones on the scene. So. And it was kind of muddy yeah. right there, wasn't it? Yes. And that pond is very shallow. Yes. Um, Extremely. We went out and visited that pond with Miracle. And there are actually two ponds on the property. So we had initially thought that it was the front pond which is larger it is very large and it's full um well i say it's very large it is a it's obviously a man-made pond it's you know it's a farm pond but the other one in the back is definitely 
back in the woods, back in wooded area. Yeah, it's you have to. It's you have not to know just where there. you're going to get there. You definitely have to know where you're it's going. Not off the road for sure. Um, I mean it. It is, but it isn't. Yeah, it is, but it, you would have you have to go through some other things before. Yeah. At the time, there was a. Um, according to Miracle, at the time there was a almost like a driveway, a very small road that went up to the back end of this um, pond, which has since been it has long since been gone, gone, demolished, and so now you have to trek through the woods to get there. But at the time, that wooded area wasn't so overgrown, and so you could definitely see. The residential area right there you behind could, yes. it at that point. But it wasn't just There like, was still a lot of trees and stuff yes, there. Yes. And it was kind of up on a hill in a way. Um, but this pond was a very small small one. I mean, it maybe 10, maybe 10 I wouldn't feet have thought around. it was a pond if it hadn't been It looked like, it looks, out. now it looks like a giant puddle. Yes. Um, but yeah, I would say maybe 10 feet around. And at the time, it couldn't have been more than... It could not have been more than three feet deep. There's no way it could have no, been. No, it's um, shallow. And, you know, and they mentioned that, you know, she, her head was in about three to four inches of water um, when they found her. And I would bet you that's all that it would, it was holding oh, at the yes. time. And the fact that that was like this big party area, mm-hmm. you know, and that there was like a really good chance that there was either a party happening there that night, you know, that some of these people had left and there's a good chance someone saw something or overheard something or something that night. Yeah. And there's no telling how many people that could have involved. Right. And that was a known place for, um, delinquent, you know, to kids to go meet meet up and and, and do their thing. That's, that's what that place was known for. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I, I'm just thinking, you know, what if somebody had just passed out, Mm -hmm. but then seen something and then was like, Oh gosh, I don't think that's real. Yeah. You know? And then they're like, Oh wait, maybe there's, I seen just this, you know? Yeah. And, and just this could Could be be, integral. Yes. It could be, It it could be everything. Yeah. So, you know, and it was close. It was close by, you know, residents, you know. People did mm-hmm. hear something that night. People thought that they'd seen different th- different vehicles that night, you know. Um, but, again, that is, like, the busiest night Yeah, that everybody would be out right. celebrating. But that, I mean, and... And you have to take into consideration that a lot of people were probably drinking that night. Oh, yeah. And just like you said, there's a really good chance that someone could have seen something and went, I don't think I, I think I made, made that up because, yeah. you know, I'd been drinking or I maybe smoked a little weed or, you know, something, whatever yeah. it was. And oh, I didn't really just see like that. Thought whatever they did was they were going to get in trouble. Yeah. If they said anything, yeah. you know? Yeah. And now, even to wait this long, maybe yeah. they just forgot about it and didn't think it was a big deal. Yeah. And, and that's another thing that we should say right now is that whatever you did, as long as it wasn't murder, <laughs> whatever you did from that time, like the statute of limitations is up. 
Yeah. You're, you're not going to yeah. get in trouble. No. no. Right. So, you know, if anybody out there is listening and you know something, you heard something, you saw something, even if you heard someone 20 years later say that they heard something or saw right. something, it's really integral to come forward Absolutely. with that information. Yeah. That would yeah. mean a lot. Oh, yes. Yeah. The medical examiner, Dr. Ted Lewis, shows up to the scene at 730. Okay. So she's found at 430. And the medical examiner shows up at 7.30. So it's it's been a while now. He notes that she was lying on her back with her hands and arms slightly above her shoulders. Her head was lying in around three to four inches of water. There was mud impacted over her right eye and her right nostril along with inside of her mouth. It's almost as if when she was flipped over on her stomach, her face may have been like shoved into that muddy area automatically put into the mud yes yeah he also noted cuts and bruises all over her body this includes her later when we get to the autopsy the cuts and stuff were was it was under her clothing as well um but she was found fully clothed her pants were unbuttoned and that and her belt buckle was missing um he also noted that there was no other trauma to the body that he saw that could have caused death, which is why they suspected drowning um, or asphyxiation because of the impacted mud and the water. Her things were noted to be scattered around the truck. Her purse along with the truck keys were missing at that point. They were actually later found in the pond, not far from where her body was. But inside her purse were the keys from the truck, from what I understand, the keys from the truck, and $150 in cash, which is what she probably made that night working, you know, working the bar. Which is interesting because... I know. The cash was not taken. Because some someone would have had to put the keys inside. Yes. Well, because the truck was parked up on the bank, she was down at the bottom of the bank, so someone would have had to put the keys in her purse and thrown it out into the middle of the pond. No, and I don't think this was cash motivated anyway she also still had multiple rings on her finger she had um i think she was wearing three or four rings like pretty expensive you know to her heirloom type rings that were all still present had not been taken so just the belt buckle was all that was really missing yes and then they found that later in the truck yes in the it was in the floorboard of the truck how it was removed they don't know Further inspection of the field that the truck had drove through. And I would say that this field was probably two acres at most. And it sits, it's right off of the highway. Like, if there weren't so many trees there, you know, um, you would be able to see it from the highway. Police investigated this field. So how how it runs, I'm going to try to explain this to you because... We don't have visuals here. Okay, so there's the highway, and then there is a road that kind of runs along the highway, and then there's this, you know, around two acres of field, this property, and then within that property, up close to the front of the, um, the that road is the larger of the ponds. Then you go back, which is technically, you go north, 
and there's the smaller pond. And then right behind that tree line is the residential area. We're not talking about middle of nowhere here. This isn't... Now, yes, it's a quiet road. Yes, it's a quiet town. But this is not, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. There's another field um, to the east of it. There's another field to the west of it. But then it all kind of curves around, you know, and in the highway is on one side. So you've got field, highway, field, residential area on each side. Yes, there are trees around it, but... It's not as secluded, you know, as... To get there, it wouldn't be yeah, secluded. Yeah, it, it's not that secluded, no. The field inspection suggested some sort of erratic driving done by the truck through this field. The right side of the truck had paint scratches. The driver's side door had a vertical inward folding dent near the hinges where something had obviously hit it uh, in that area. The chrome was bent away from the body at the bottom edge of the frame, forward of the driver's door. Damage was also noted in the driver's door lock, so it was unable to be locked. Um, And I even think that they noted in there that the driver's door was unable to be closed at the time as well because of the damage. There was also a fence that had been ran through closer to the side uh, with the road and the highway. So it looked like someone had driven off of the road, gone through this fence, took the fence down with it, did some wild, crazy, erratic driving in this field, and then ended up uh, sitting right up next to that small pond in the back. And that would have been a pretty sharp turn to the right off of the street well i mean and and that fence goes on like i said it's a it's about two acres so that fence does go along the road for that two acres but to avoid the pond you would have to have known where the pond was you would have had to take a sharp right yeah quickly. You, and and you would have had to yeah really really hit that sharp right like that 90 degree angle pretty difficult yeah in the dark you would have, I mean, you just would have had to know the property, I feel yes. like. There were also signs that when the truck came around the to the pond, the small pond in the back, um, it did not just stop there. It went back off towards the woods and then drove up to the pond from there. So there's a good chance that it was sitting near the actual woods for a while before it was driven up to the pond. So when it was found, the truck was sitting parallel with the pond, the passenger side facing inwards towards the pond. There are theories that she was drunk driving, why she was able to get in the van and perfectly normally drive this babysitter home without any incidents and then all of a sudden, she is absolutely drunk out of her mind. Taking a huge right <laughs> turn well, and, off of a road. And we tracked her the route that she would have taken. We drove the route. And so from her work, it would have been, I think it's like a three-minute drive, from her work to home. Mm-hmm. From home, she would have gone to the babysitter's house. That's the longest drive because it's from one side of town to the other. Now, mm-hmm. remember, it's still just Henrietta. 
So it's like seven minutes tops. And it was one road, one straight shot from one. Yeah, it was perfectly straight. From point A from to point B. And then from the babysitter's house, she would have gone, I think it was literally like two blocks up and then to the west to get to the medical supply. Then from there, where apparently there was, you know, erratic drunk driving, would have, she would have gone from there straight south for about two minutes, made a very sharp turn um, to her right, which that's the way the road goes. The whole thing just veers off to the right. You either follow it or you run off the road. Yes. And there's a part of it right there that part of the road, when you when you go towards there, that you have to drive straight or you are literally yeah. hitting a side of a cliff. Yeah, it's, it's very narrow, that yes. road as well. So when you veer off to the right, you go for about another two minutes, maybe... And then you'll run into that property. Yes. Like that property will be to the right of you. And the highway will be to the left of you. Or I should say that property will be to the north of you. And then that highway will be to the south of you. That's supposedly the route that she took. Now, it's also, it also should be noted that her mother's home is along that route. Yes. Uh, it is right before that curve, that big curve that we just mentioned. Somehow, she got super erratic from the time that she got the truck and ended up at the pond. And the theory was that she was so drunk, at one point she hit some sort of bump or culvert or something, and it threw her up in the air, and she landed on her esophagus, and it crushed her esophagus, and she got out at the pond because she couldn't breathe and then she dropped a bunch of her stuff out on the ground and, but not her purse she still had her purse with her and then went around to the truck to the other side to the passenger side and fell down that slight little hill there um, that goes down to the pond and then just laid there and died i wanted to mention too that People might have some thought of, well, maybe she went to a convenience store and got some alcohol, or maybe there was alcohol in the car or something, mm-hmm. and she got more inebriated after she dropped the babysitter off. But you have to there remember- There was no evidence of that in no, the No, there's no evidence. It's yeah. in the middle of the night. Yeah. It's These convenience stores are not going to- pr- They can't sell alcohol. Well, and no one even said that they had saw her no. come in there, there's no purchase evidence anything. Of it. So we know she didn't have anything with her. From witness statements, we know that she, unless, I mean, yeah, there's a chance that someone could have walked up and had a six pack and said, hey, drink this with me. I mean, that's, that's pretty Oklahoma for you, but there's no evidence in the truck to suggest that happened. There's no evidence to suggest that she got as, yeah, that she got like just super wasted and when they did the toxicology it came back um that she had 0.11 percent alcohol level that is just barely over the legal limit not for driving as erratically as the truck was yeah i would i would expect it to be way higher would have it damaged that yeah, that much Severe. damage and that much erratic driving and stuff like that. I would suspect it to have been higher than that. 0.08. So, 9, 10, 11. She was only 
three little factors away from the legal limit, which, you know, for someone who had done a shot or two at, you know, at midnight, that checks out. Alcohol does affect everyone differently, but... And when they found the truck, the um, the fence, from what I understand, was still attached to the front. Like where the truck had gone through the fence, it was still basically wrapped around the front of the truck um, and like tied up in the axles and so stuff like that. just kept going through just, the fence. Just kept going. They started working this as if it were some sort of accident. What they found later, and we got a copy, we looked over the autopsy report extensively and oh man there was a lot of damage to the area around the neck to put in layman's terms the windpipe was crushed the hyoid bone that bone we're talking about this the hyoid bone is the theme of season four i think um it really is uh the hyoid bone was fractured and some of the muscles and stuff around the neck were bruised and um, there was a lot going on in the neck area. The first assumption with the neck area is that, so ridiculous, is that all of that was injured during the moment that she went over some sort of like this erratic driving and she went over some sort of hill or something like it, the truck came up and she, I don't know why, but they just assumed that she wasn't buckled in. And she came up with it. And then when the truck landed, she came down and hit the hit her neck on the top of the steering wheel, causing all of that crushing. That's not possible. With her height. <laughs> and that truck, she would have been sitting low on that steering wheel anyway. I, when I drive a truck, I have to scoot all the way up almost. And I'm still trying to... Trying yeah. to, you know, get my feet on to I'm 5'6", and I still have to lift mine all the way up. Yeah, so... So, it just, that just doesn't make any sense to me. No. Uh, and the air uh, airbag, from what I understand, was not deployed. Um, and it had ran through that fence without deploying. So, there was no actual impact that was hard enough to deploy the airbag. That tells me that there was no impact hard enough to destroy her her neck muscles cartilage all of that bone like it did it's just the fence that tore the truck up right so do you want to know what we normally see that in that sort of injury is almost always strangulation yes almost always we've talked about the highwood bone so much because we've had several cases this season that has featured that happening this would make the i think the third case that we've covered this season now. Um, and again, it's not easy to fracture the hyoid bone. That bone, just for anyone who hasn't listened to the other episodes, kind of, uh, so it kind of looks like a wishbone a little bit. And it floats, you know, where you would have your Adam's apple. So it floats around that area. It doesn't touch anything else. It touches zero other bones. So it has all of these muscles and everything attached to it. It's got all of this padding around it protection. for protection. It It is also helping to protect the trachea. Um, and so in order to fracture that, you have to put physical pressure on it. 
you're not going to do that. You're probably not going to do that if you were to just trip and fall and hit your neck on something. I have actually hit my face on a steering wheel before in a car wreck when Oof. I was 16. Um, just turned 16 and I got into a really bad car wreck and I actually did almost the same thing. Really? Where my face went into the steering wheel Yeah. and right where my neck would have hit, because I'm short, uh-huh. was not it was towards the bottom and right. I, it was the same height of her so I would not have been able to hit it on the top right and I did not do my neck had no damage it my mouth yeah did but yeah. not my neck yeah so with being the same height of her and and actually having my face hit a steering wheel before like that um it would be hard to it's hard for me to grasp that that could even be in yeah. the realm of possibility. I really don't think it is. I really don't think it is. We see a lot of this in those types of uh, rage attacks with strangulation because you can absolutely do that by putting your hands around a human neck and squeezing. If you have that much rage, you absolutely can crush the windpipe. And what we mostly see it in, though, is someone being forced to the ground and pressure being put on that on the neck usually either with fingers or with their knee when you put knee pressure into the back of that neck and you're pushing into the ground which would also explain why she had so much mud and stuff impacted it would force that that bone forward it it would That's the first thing that I saw in the autopsy that I was like, this was not an accident. This was absolutely not an accident. Not to mention there were scratches and tears around the, um, the top of the liner around the dome light, like all around the dome light and the dome light cover was missing, which is a strange thing to be missing unless someone is kicking it, scratching it, trying to get away from someone in that truck about the only way that a dome light would miss would be missing from that from some kind of natural or some kind of running into something would be hail hail will actually if it hits so hard it out it'll pop it out but this was not the case well i'm so saying that there could be there could be the possibility that it popped out when they hit that culvert or whatever they hit and came back down. I still don't think but it would I don't, have to come don't from think the it top. Well, and you add in the scratch marks, all of the, um, and it, I'm not just talking, I'm talking like scratched into. Have to hit that yeah. and knock it out. It would have yeah. to come from the top, not right. coming from something force underneath it. Right. Because I've had mine knocked out before and it was from hail. Yeah. And it actually hit the car so hard it knocked out those lights. Also in the autopsy, we talk about the scratches all over the body. She's wearing what you would consider to be going out clothes. The the you remember the movie The Trimmers? Yes. Reba McIntyre oh, was yes. in that movie. That's exactly Okay. So that style of jeans. That is exactly what Yes. Yeah. So this was like late eighties, early nineties, Oklahoma. These are, you know, fitted Wrangler. cowboy Wrangler style jeans. Uh you're not getting through those. <laughs> You're not no, going to get no. through those. And they're kind of going out. You know, you yeah. you, you put them on because she's working mm-hmm. and she's 
you know, you have to dress a little. And they're made for people in Oklahoma who work, you know, cattle and stuff like yes. that. But, you know, they're also fashionable at the time. Dress a little nicer to go to work. Yes. So you put them on. Yeah. yeah. So they are meant to be hardy. And so to find all of these cuts and bruises um, all up and down her legs suggests that her pants were removed. Especially underneath them. Yes. You can't. Yes. I mean, you can have bruises. You can that, have bruises, but you're not going to get the scratches. No, they're going to come through the pants. They're going to come through the pants. And they didn't. They were found on her body. That's when they started looking for signs of trauma uh, in other areas of her body. Almost Private like, areas. Almost like sticks and things had, yes. had scratched. It's like she was running through the woods naked. It's like she was running from someone through the woods naked. I don't know how else to describe it. That's what they look like. We've seen the, um, what do you call it? The diagram mm-hmm. that they drew and everywhere, that's just, that's the only way I can describe it. Well, and honestly, when we were walking through there, we had sticks yes. and trees and yes. everything hitting us. And if we would have been running through there, we would have had oh, all yeah. kinds of scratches all over our face, all that over our almost, arms. It almost makes me want to go back in like a short dress or something there. and just run through there and see what happens. It would have torn us up. Yeah, it really would have. And I think that's exactly what happened. I think that she was fighting with someone in, in you know, trying to stay alive in those woods. Um, I think that someone abducted her at some point, drove that truck themselves, you know, which could explain the erratic driving. Um, you know, if you're trying to hightail it out of there because you just abducted someone well and she might be fighting you yeah and she's probably fighting you uh that would also explain why she didn't stop at her mother's home that they drove she apparently drove right past you know if she's in some sort of dire straits why wouldn't she stop there that's your safe place that's your safe place but she drove right by it i mean hell if i had just been abducted and I was driving, I would have driven straight through my mother's front. front oh, yes. Like, I would have grabbed straight the, through her house. I would have grabbed the, <laughs> the steering wheel and then I would have been right in there. Yes. I mean, so, you know, I, I don't think she was driving at all. I think someone abducted her and drove her to this spot. It would also explain going back to the woods, why... Um, She had all these cuts and stuff all over her body. We know that that she was found with her pants unbuttoned. And then later we had seminal fluid found within her. I think that someone drove up to those woods, took her back in, in those woods, had their way with her. And then when they were done, drug her down to the pond, drove the truck up next to the pond and left it where, where they left it. And then if she did this to herself, it was if it was just an accident, how did she, even if we write off the neck injuries as to that stupid explanation, uh, how do we explain the drag marks for, of her body that her body made from the woods to the pond? How she, do we explain that? She drug herself and then put her pants she, back on. I mean, what happened? <laughs> yes. I just, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. No, it doesn't make sense at all. It's going to do something to the inside of your, yeah. her mouth or her teeth where there was no or evidence even, of that. Or even just scrapes, bruises, something on the face. It would have been something on the face. Or a dislocated mm-hmm. jaw. But we didn't see There any was of none that. of that. Yeah. There's none of that in the autopsy. And the autopsy report actually ended up stating that it was under suspicious circumstances 
but the means could not be determined. So the medical examiner basically said, we know that her death, we're going to rule it as asphyxiation. We know that she died because she could not receive air. He even noted in there that it looked like some sort of manual strangulation. suspicious. He said that in the report. Yes. But then he seems to go back and he goes, well, I guess it could have been caused by a car accident where she hit her neck on, you know, something in the vehicle during an accident. So it's like he's trying to tell you what he thinks, but then... I don't know. It's almost like he was forced to be like, well, let's entertain this idea. And he was like, yeah, I guess that could happen. And so then at the end of all of that, the end of the report, he literally states, I cannot tell you how the asphyxiation happened. I cannot tell you whether it was because she was strangled and that's what killed her or if she had the mud and stuff like that or if that's what killed her. So if she had just fallen down drunk into the mud and was unable to move somehow, though I got the, unable to get herself up, I got the feeling he was leaning more towards he, he was, yeah. but because he couldn't say, well, we don't know if she fell down and just fell straight, you know, mm-hmm. face first into the mud and just laid there, or if she was killed because of this strangulation, they had to leave it undetermined. Yes. But he he was very strong in his speculation, I think, on there. They even, to this day, I I feel like I have the, at least I asked for the most updated report, and it has been amended um, to include some reports. But the cause has never been updated. Um, They never marked it as homicide. They never marked it as suicide, and they never marked it as accident. It's literally still just pending until maybe there's more evidence, you know, we'll we'll leave it pending. They do have a note on here. They also marked the autopsy as violent, unusual, or unnatural. And yet they did not mark it as accident or suicide or homicide. Looking at the autopsy report, and there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we've we've left out here because going through these autopsy reports is it's tedious and I also have EMT training Um, I use that for 911 dispatch but I also still have it so I've I've taken anatomy and physiology and so looking through this stuff I can almost always immediately tell when something is off like something is not right here and to see all of the injuries that she had And to put it into context does not make sense for what authorities were claiming that happened that day. I just don't feel like that's, that's what happened. And then here's the big part. There was also, noted in the autopsy, a, quote, possible bite mark, skin of right forearm. So, yeah, I guess it's possible for you to bite your own arm in that place hard enough to leave a bite mark but I highly doubt that you would which also means there was another person present there had to have been another person present that night and this the crazy part about this piece of evidence is that it's never mentioned again no it's not yeah 
in any of the investigations, in anything I've seen, it's never mentioned again. I would love to see if they even took photos of it. So fingerprints is how they officially identified her. Uh, And there were fingerprints found on the outside of the truck. Um, They were matched to her and Yule, which makes sense because it was on right outside the driver's side, you know, door of the truck. And it was his truck. So I haven't seen anywhere else where there were any unidentified fingerprints or anything like that. The only other suspicious thing in this case was the uh, T-shirt. There was a long sleeved T-shirt found in the truck that Yule claims did not belong to him. Apparently, it was not there the night before. That also, we can assume, you know, that or theorize that someone attacked her in that truck and took his shirt off. We already know that her clothing was taken off. We already know that there was DNA found in her body um, because she had intercourse. Now, that's the thing everyone is saying is that she had intercourse with someone that night consensual uh that it was consensual but i don't believe that to be the case i think she was raped i think that she was attacked i think she was raped and i think she was strangled to death i think that someone killed her or at least thought they killed her in the woods and pulled her body over to that pond turned her over and pushed her face into that dirt until they made sure that she was not gonna come back period that is not something that this person, no person, deserves to happen to them. No. And then f- for all of this to be kind of, I don't know, almost made a mockery of. Like, oh, at first it's, oh, she did it herself. It's just some big accident. And and then nothing happened on this case. Nothing happened. They eventually did get a match back to the DNA. Because this is now technically an open case that is being investigated by the Henrietta DA's office. We do know the name of a suspect in this case, uh, but we are not going to say his name on air because we don't want to impede this investigation. Yes. So, we do know that there was a match to the DNA. When they questioned this person about the DNA... The initial, and and then they questioned him two or three times. The initial response was that it was consensual. Now, this person would have been underage at the time. Not just under drinking age, but considered a minor at the time. And they did not know each other. From what we understand, these two people did not know each other in their normal everyday lives. They had never met before. So we're talking about a woman, a 26-year-old woman is going to drop off a 15-year-old babysitter, knowing that her two kids were waiting at home with her fiancé, and then just see some random underage dude walking around and be like, oh, yeah, I can do that real quick. In the middle of the night. Like you're not tired. Yeah, and we're talking, this has to be at after 2.30 a.m. It has to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's deep in the middle of the night. And yes. She's probably tired. She worked. Yes. She worked on her feet all night physically. long. Literally on her feet all night long. And so she's just going to be like, yeah, I'll have sex with an underage minor 
and then just go home to my fiance. Like, that does not make sense to me. Out of everything that we've learned about Shauna, I just don't see that being a factor. I don't see how anyone could think that that is what happened. This same suspect was, we know that he was on foot in the area without a vehicle earlier that night. At some point before Shauna got off work, he was on foot walking down um, very close to a gas station downtown and was stopped by the police in Henrietta. Uh, we know that the police asked him what he was doing, what he, why he was out so late, because there was a curfew, especially for minors. Um, and instead of questioning him further, he said, he said, oh, well, I'm coming from a New Year's Eve party. And all they did was say, well, you know, it's after curfew, go home. Okay, that's great. But we still just established that we know he was there. We know he was in town. We know that he was downtown late. We know that he was in the area without his own vehicle. So it's not like he would have to stash that or, you know, abandon that if he were to force Shauna in her vehicle and take it. It could also explain some of the erratic driving. Yes. Because it it was an unexperienced driver. Well, and also the medical supply place where she would have taken the van back to, uh, something to note is that it sat right on the roadway. There was no back in yes. where you wouldn't be seen. And it's to a drop main roadway. The, yes. It's a I main. mean, it is, it is mm-hmm. like if you took two steps, you'd be in the road. Yes. And it's actually almost a little dangerous because yes. you could, if you had a longer like SUV or something, you could possibly be sitting out into the roadway. Yes, you could. Um, but it, we also should note that it is directly across the street from a gas station. Yes. And this would have been one of the only gas stations in town and very easy to see where the cars were parked because that was one thing that we made a point to ask is would the cars be parked in the front yes and they were known to be parked um, in front what we know of the office which was right on the street and that's probably why he didn't want his truck left there because it was just right there and if it was a longer because it was a what crew cab i think i said yes so that's a longer truck and so that is one of those that, you know, if you're not paying attention, it might get sideswiped or something like that. Well, yeah, so. it would have been really easy if someone was intoxicated or somebody was to just kind of go over a little bit. Yes. So I can understand why he wouldn't want to leave his truck there all night. It would also make a lot of sense that because that was a main road down Henrietta, it would also make sense that this person would have been, you know, walking down in through that area. And at you the could time. see someone perfectly from across yes. the street. I mean, it's oh, that yeah, close. Yes, it really is that close. And we even went over and sat back behind the gas station um, off to the east side of it just to see how much we could see uh, over there. And there's like even a back part of this business, like a whole separate building that you can still see perfectly yes. because it's just, it's so close together. But that right there, you could see ever. I mean, there yeah. would be no, there would be no masking mm. your movements. No. And it's two thirty in the morning. So there's not going to be many people driving to, there. to cover up your movements. Yep. And it's a very, very pretty short cute little blonde girl who is all alone in that parking lot and I could definitely see 
opportunity. Probably there. tired, just wanting to get the yeah. truck and go home. And so yeah. she's probably just thinking about getting out. Get the truck and go home and not really looking yes. to see who might be around her. And now I will say the suspect in question that we're talking about now, um, even at the time, would have been over six feet tall. Yes. And, and around, somewhere around 160 pounds. And that was one thing we wanted to mention too, yeah. because she, she's, now it says on her autopsy, five, six. Okay. And she, it says on here is she weighed 130 pounds. That's my height. I mean, I'm just saying a six foot dude that's got 30, 35, 40 pounds on you. Pretty broad shouldered too. Pretty, pretty, pretty broad. Pretty sturdy guy. Yes. Sturdy, sturdy built guy. Probably even as a, a kid. So, and we also know that this suspect had a lot of run-ins with the law. Um, starting from when he was like 13, 14 years old. There's probably a lot of juvenile records that are sealed right now. I'm just going to say, this is how most of them test the waters. If you see people walking around and they walk up to you and go, hey, do you have a light? you have a cigarette I can smoke? Man, get out of there. Get out of there. Because more than likely, that's probably what happened. Hey, ma'am, you got a light? Or as I was approached... I need directions. Yeah, I need directions. directions. And guys, it really happens. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of times people think, you might think, okay, maybe it happens, but it's not going to happen to me because I'm careful. I do this, but I'm telling you. But there's times like this, you know, exactly when Shauna was vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. That this can happen. Exactly. But it happens. It happened to me. It happened to Shauna. Mm -hmm. It's happened to so many other people. Mm -hmm. And you just have to really think about that right now and think about what you would do if someone approaches you. Yeah. Make a safety plan. One of the best things you can do for yourself is to make a safety plan and to know exactly what you would do if someone approaches you. If no one ever approaches you, that is incredible. But it could happen. Mm-hmm. So it's better to be prepared. There was an unidentified palm print on the door that they compared to, and I believe they even compared it to our suspect and it was not a match. There's no telling where that could have come from. Um, I mean, anybody walking by that, the, like we said, it's just right there by the gas station. Well, but and that's what makes me think that palm print might not even be relevant at all because it's right. so close to the street that someone could have walked right. by and just put their hand out. Yeah, while, while they were getting in their own vehicle or something like or that. Or could have just walked by just a kid just to touch yeah. it. Or who knows? Maybe there's a whole different suspect and that's who that's going to match true. down the line. We don't know. We just don't know. I didn't go to her funeral. I did see her at the funeral home. Can I ask why you didn't go to the funeral? Yeah, for the longest time, I guess I've blocked out that memory, but my grandma had asked me if I wanted to go to the funeral, and I just told her no. Mm-hmm. I now know why I told her no, but for a long time, I didn't understand why I told her no, or why they would even listen to a... A seven-year-old? Yeah, an eight-year-old trying to be like... They told me that Yule, he was going to be singing, and he was going to be a pallbearer, and I was like, well, I'm not... <laughs> Like, are you crazy? Y'all are going to allow this to happen when all I hear is, you know, y'all's opinion of of him and his involvement with my mother and this ordeal. Y'all are going to let that happen? How does any of that make sense? Yeah. So I didn't go. Regardless if he had anything to do with it or not at that time, 
Right. The mindset of so many people in my family at that time, why would you? Mm-hmm. Th- that doesn't make sense to me. So I said no. I didn't. I wasn't going to do that. So you went to the funeral home? I did. I did say my goodbyes there, you know, and I remember staring at her in the casket, casket and I wanted her to move. I would just look at her and hope that I could see her chest moving, but that didn't happen. <laughs> she did look very beautiful, though. It, I think it's really important for people to hear this. And know that there are people out there still fighting for some sort of justice for someone that they loved so deeply. Right, and it could be as simple as, you know, something that was just pushed back into a file that could Mm -hmm. turn someone's life around. Not long after that... This, this case went cold. I mean, and I mean not long. Yes. Uh, like I said, I think that this case was featured the last time when Miracle's family went down and picketed. I think that was the last time it was featured in any sort of media. And that was, I actually think that was mid-95. So what happened after? Where did you... You went to live with your grandparents? Me and my sister both. We went and lived with my grandparents. We did some, you know, picketing, I guess is what they called it. Yeah. So we did. I do remember doing some picketing. um, That was in the police department. I think there's some pictures of that. That was in the the paper. Yeah, that was in the paper. And I don't know if this was on the front page of... Does the Henrietta... Does Henrietta have a paper? Yes. So this this is the front page of the Henrietta? mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, we both lived with our grandparents, which um, wasn't my mom's dad. Mm-hmm. My grandma had remarried, but um, so we we lived with her. We did the picketing. I remember seeing jars around the town for donations. Um, I know so many. I just remember so many people like donating so much to my grandparents. And to, for us girls, you know, the community, not just the community, but you, but the family as well, like almost immediately thought like this is not, oh, was not an accident. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think from that moment, just because of how, you know, he didn't file for a missing person. He just filed for his truck. Mm-hmm. Um, There's just so many things that made him. And, and, and then again, it's always the, the boyfriend right. or the fiancé or husband. Right. That is the suspect at first. It's always like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand. <laughs> there wasn't enough time to count him out in, in my eyes before the funeral happened, you know? Right. yeah. Whether I was <laughs> young or not, the things and what people were saying at the time was in front of me right. and my sister. So, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm like, okay, so you're saying this person did it, so I'm going to stay as far away as I can. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But to bring him closer into such a, something so intimate and mm-hmm. something that is the last thing, I feel like that was just not my cup of tea, even yeah. at seven years old. So, mm-hmm. Did he um, talk, keep in touch with your grandmother or anybody after that or did he just kind of disappear yes um 
there was, you know, keep in touch. Um, my aunt grew a relationship with him a couple of weeks after afterwards, which obviously didn't last very long. Your mom's sister? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Right. So that, that happened shortly, within like two weeks. Mm-hmm. And they had a short mm-hmm. affair of the heart. They had an off and on. My mom is super beautiful and super outgoing and super bubbly. So she had this personality that, you know, not very many people can have and and contain it yes. mm-hmm. for such a long period of time, no matter what they're going through. And no matter what my mom was going through, she was positive when she left that house. Mm-hmm. That's just like, who she was. That's who she was, you know, and people envy that. Oh, yeah. Yes. You know, for no reason, because no one knows what goes on be- behind closed doors or in someone right. else's mind. Yeah. But she was doing everything that she could to just live a happy life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know stuff just between them would just kind of heat up and the young sister would chase after a man that was you know now an ex of my mother's or something did he just kind of disappear after that no he got married about eight months after that really yes to a young lady that I mean she resembled my mom so much it was in the paper and I seen it, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know? But, um, and so he was around. He was actually my mailman. It seemed really? like, it really seemed like he was following me around. Now, that just could be. It's a small town. Yeah, it's a small town. But I lived in town, way on top of the hill in town. And then I lived way west of town this out is in when the you country. Adult, right well no this was just me growing up oh growing up yeah years. Through, throughout the years um of my teenage years mm-hmm. um but i just i seen him all the time he was my male person it seemed like wherever i lived and it was quite concerning but i just would run you know from yeah. the school bus to the house i would just run if i seen i could see off the mill. as a kid how that would make you uncomfortable I was in fear yeah yeah when I seen him I was like I didn't think Mel I thought especially if he hadn't been cleared at that time well I mean supposedly he was just never a suspect they did talk to him he did have a couple of interviews with them supposedly a couple of lie detector tests that were done as well Mm -hmm. he was never a suspect per se yeah but he was never labeled anything already up to this point can see how this has affected your life. Did you get to stay with your grandma? Did you and your sister get to stay or what happened? So I told you, my sister's, you know, two years older than me. So she was around my mom a lot, a lot more and and can remember. She doesn't quite remember what all she went through because it's been like put in a black box, but Mm -hmm. she still deals with the trauma from it. So my mom and my sister has the same sort of, um personality like um when they're really frantic they're frantic Mm -hmm. okay and so when my when my sister was young and she's seen my mom go through that stuff and then there's some people that my mom had dated Mm -hmm. that were not nice to us girls and so at the time that my mom was murdered my my sister was already showing signs of defiant Mm -hmm. you know um I remember her 
almost starting the bathroom on fire just because she needed that attention, mm-hmm. you know? So she was already defiant. Then our mom's murdered. Okay, and then we both go and live with our grandma. Things are kind of, she's really hard to understand. She's very emotional, very angry back then. She handled it the way she knew how to handle it, mm-hmm. to handle it. And I, mean, I no handled one never it prepared you guys for this. No, so. no. And I remember my sister getting in trouble at my grandma's house. And I'm walking down the hallway, and my sister just punches me. Okay. And she's just mad. Mm-hmm. And I'm crying. And. I remember my grandma asking me, do you want your sister here? I'm like, no. She just punched me in my face. Why would I want her here, you know? Well, I didn't know what that truly meant. Mm -hmm. I didn't. But my sister went and lived with my aunt for a little bit. Mm -hmm. That didn't work out. Then she went and lived with her dad's mom. That didn't really work out. And she went to state custody. And so she lived the majority of her life through group homes. Mm. Went to juvie, mainly from running away from whatever group homes that she was in at that time. And, you know, I went to these places to see her. And when she was in juvie, we would she would write me. We would write each other. So she had a really, whether it was good or not, she didn't have anybody. She had complete strangers mm-hmm. growing up. During the time that she should... The critical The critical growth. time yeah. where she should need me or, or a family member to hold her together, to help her. But she didn't get that. Mm-hmm. She, she went straight to the streets after she turned 18. But after that, she just kind of lived on the go in the streets. And, and so it's, it's not just this person took one life. It's not just the fact that oh no, your mother is no longer here getting to live her life to the fullest, but it's a ripple effect of every single person around her. Well, yes, yeah. and, and I think even when you're an adult and you know how, what's, if you know someone is you know passing away from cancer or something, you still might not react to it how you're you've prepared yourself for now, in fact i can tell you you know so i lived with my my grandma my papa bill 11 or 12 i think he died of lung cancer and hospice came in and i don't know why or how this happened but you know he had lung cancer and i was sitting there and i watched him take his last breath and it was very dramatic but it is a different type of grief mm-hmm. than it is when something so when someone's just taken from you mm-hmm. out of no, out of like why you know than it is if it was an illness mm-hmm. you know you're kind of going you're grieving as you're because you know what's going to happen right. so you're 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 doing you get to kind of almost prepare yourself a little bit kind of for it. well yeah. and when you and I think that's important that you said that because even then sometimes we can compartmentalize it for years yeah um, I know just with mine recently with my mother-in-law you know that I kind of see those signs of it with my daughter because she saw my mother-in-law take her last breath so you can imagine when you take that but then you take something that's so traumatic and just so you just you don't have time to prepare how much more traumatizing that can be to someone and it's like you said it's a ripple effect and it affects everyone and I think people forget that the victim is not just 
that is not right. the only victim. No, it's you're not, also especially. a victim. Yes. Yeah. And your sister's also a victim. Right. Your grandmother. And, yeah. And, I mean, every family member. Yes. You mm-hmm. know, it was and has been, no matter what, um, affected mm-hmm. by the loss of my mother. And you've, you've been the only one really outspoken in your family to try to move this case along, yeah. right? Um, so when we were younger, I think at the beginning, they tried everything that they could do. Mm-hmm. I think they were discouraged a lot. Um, some An attorney took some money and just left with it, didn't help them um, with the case at all. My grandma was told to stop or she was going to get hurt. Um, and I believe at that moment when she got that phone call is she just stopped. Well, and that's what you wanted to talk to, uh, talk about as well is living in fear because you don't know who did this. Right. And you don't know if they're going to come back for you at any, any point in your life. Oh yeah. Anytime, anytime that phone rings. Yeah. My papa Chico, her dad, I talked to him a little bit about it and he just couldn't, he couldn't, he couldn't because that was his daughter. Mm-hmm. He couldn't because his heart, his heart couldn't handle it. Yeah, he couldn't even talk about her. Mm-hmm. He couldn't even say her. I wanted him to paint me a, a mural of her, you know, because he he could do that. And he told me there is no way that I would be able to hold a paintbrush to do yeah. that for you. My yeah. sister could never do it. One, she just can't comprehend at all you know she just cannot comprehend the fact she can't get past the fact that it even happened yeah so um not I've never kept her in the dark but I I've always kept it to where I could give her a positive like a positive spin on it yeah Yeah. you know like I hate this is what I found this is what's happening but guess this is where it's gonna go kind of thing and so and I didn't get her hopes up either. I'd just be straight honest with her, you know. This is could be a far fetch, but this is what I'm trying. And I just wouldn't go into details. And I kind of did the same thing with, with the grandparents. I know just within a year or two, they everybody had stopped investigating or looking into this. Yeah. So it wasn't until I could actually leave. I wasn't going to do anything. I wasn't going to talk about it. I wasn't going to do anything as long as I lived in that town. Mm-hmm. You know, because I was literally living in fear from day one. Anytime something was spoke about my mom, I kind of just shut down and I was kind of just in the corner, you know, mm-hmm. listening. When I graduated, I moved out and I started asking a few people. Um, I went to my grandma and asked who I should and shouldn't talk to around town, you know. Yeah. And so she gave me people, a couple of people's names and I would go and talk to them a little bit. But it wasn't until... Around 2007, when I really got in touch with a couple of police officers, sit down with them in Henrietta, ask them, you know, what can I look, what can I look through? Like, I need, I want to see her evidence box, you know, what can I see? So they were like, well, it's not here. We have to dig it out, you know? So I was like, okay. So that never happened for quite some time. Between that time, I came back down when they got the evidence box out and I sat there in the police station. I was so sick that day and a friend went with me, but
but it was my only chance. So I was like, I'm going to do this. So we sat there and there was tapes, there was reports. There was some things that I didn't want to touch just because I just didn't want to. I could have listened to those tapes sitting there. Mm -hmm. I just, I just couldn't. Yeah. Not at that time. The person that did the investigation, that was the investigator on my mom's case, at that time he was out on medical leave. So when I came through and seen what they had, and I told, I asked the officer to mail me any of the reports that I could get. Mm-hmm. And so that's what happened. And um, I just got, like, I got her autopsy and, and that's, report. that's what and, you gave mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. I had another report in there. I'm not supposed to. I didn't know if I was supposed to get it or not. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, I read over it for I don't know how long. And I would combine, I would write down a list of everybody that was mentioned. And I would just go and talk to them, Mm -hmm. you know. And I would really never get anywhere. Yeah. (laughs) You know, they would just tell me what a good person she was. And then they would just tell me their theories. Right. It wasn't, you know, and it all came back kind of to Yule. Is where everybody was pointing it. I think there was just a lot to it, you know. Um, Do I think that he's completely innocent? No. Do I think a lot of people are completely innocent? No. It's been over 25 years. Yeah, it's it's been way too long. The Henrietta DA's office eventually took over the case. They, for some reason, have told Miracle they don't seem to think that the suspect that we're talking about is the correct suspect. They probably have their reasons for that. Or maybe they just don't have enough evidence to support it. Um, I will say that his story, every time that he makes, you know, a statement about this, and we've read, I've read at least one um, statement, that his stories change every time. Uh, at one point, he said that he did, in fact, come in contact with Shauna, um, that they had consensual sex, that he then left her and went to where he was staying in town, which he did not live in Henrietta at the time. He was staying there um, with a couple whom actually lived literally right next door to that property that she ended up being on. Uh he claims that he went there and sat on the porch and waited for this couple to come home because they had gone partying that night. And when that couple did come home, uh, he, for whatever reason, it was a man and a woman, this couple, for whatever reason, they decided to confess to him that they had killed Shauna that night. And then he kind of goes into some detail about what this person told him of how they killed Shauna and there is absolutely mention of strangulation. There is absolutely mention of this man taking off his shirt and possibly leaving it behind. There's a lot of things in his statements that although we think is total bullshit, um, we also think that there is a lot in there that he's given away. That wouldn't have been known to the public. Yes. That would not have been known to the public at the time. Um, which is what makes him such a good suspect for this. Uh, We know that he was in the area. We know that he was on foot. We know that he could at least see that location every single day that he stayed with this couple. We know he was aware, um, you know, that this 
this pond was a possible party area. We know that he had just left a possible party that night, possibly even at that pond. If he had come from that party, he would have known that no one was longer no longer there at the area that the area had been cleared out. And you don't know what if he if he had been drinking, we if don't he know. had been doing drugs. We don't I mean, know. we don't know. So it's possible that he could have been so inebriated and correct. And that's why the truck was Well, because was. yes, because a lot of his interactions with his jail time has to do with drugs. Um it's and distribution stuff like that. So we can't confirm any of that for no. that night. And supposedly the couple that he was staying with were his drug dealers. Now, again, unconfirmed. Yes. Um, We don't know that. And that couple actually, what they were investigated. They weren't technically quote cleared, but I guess they were cleared enough because they eventually left town and completely moved. I think they moved out of Oklahoma, but, um, they were cleared enough to, you know, let leave the state. Yes. Uh, so I haven't seen statements from that couple. Again, all of this is speculation. And yes. that is why it's so important. You know, after all of these years, you could have heard, you know, if you were a kid at the time, you could have heard your mom. You overheard your mom say something about it. You, you know, maybe she was at that party that night. You could have overheard some, you know, neighborhood guy say something about, you know, this is what he heard. This is, you know, because small towns talk and you cannot convince me otherwise. Oh, yes. And maybe someone drove by. Yeah. And saw something. Saw the truck that night parked in front of or maybe saw the van parked and that would give a timeline for when the van exactly you know exactly traded out or maybe someone heard a commotion coming from the woods and you might have thought well it's new year's eve it's you know three o'clock in the morning it's just people out there getting crazy but you might have actually heard her being attacked so if there's anything that you know out there that I don't care how small it is, always can follow up and, and send that information in as a tip as yourself. You can do it anonymously. You can message us on our Facebook page. You can, you know, send in a tip on our website. Um, you can go straight to the DA's office. You can call your now local police agency, whatever it may be. Could be a missing piece of the puzzle. It it definitely could. It could put together even if you heard. Let's just say you heard screaming from the woods, and you remember being in bed that night, and you look over, and it was two forty a.m. That is an integral piece of that timeline. So don't ever think that what you witnessed or saw isn't important enough for you to come forward with. Because that could determine someone's alibi. You know, the timing is very important. And, and it's something that really tells a story. The yeah. timeline. It, it tells really a story. Does. It really does. And one more thing I wanted to mention about this suspect um, was that some of the charges that he he is currently serving prison term. 
Uh, he has a bunch of churches that, you know, started racking up, at least that we know of, because if he has a juvenile record, it's probably sealed. Um, starting around 97 is when I got really, really bad. When he would have not been a minor anymore. Right. Right. When they could, yeah, when they could actually charge him as an adult. But several of those charges include Grand Theft Auto. So I just, I just wanted to put that out there. That's definitely something that this person was known to do. No. Well, and no matter what, no matter who the suspect is or what the, what the timeline was for the night, this was a young mother of two yes. that had her whole life still left in front of her. Stolen. Stolen from her. It was stolen. So it's not about implicating someone. Mm -hmm. It's about... Finding answers. Just period. Finding answers. For someone that their life has been taken from them so early. Mm -hmm. That did not get to raise her children. No. Now that we have spoken with Miracle, their lives would... Her and her sister's lives, her grandmother's life, all their lives would have been so vastly different if their mother had still been in it. They were absolutely impacted to the fullest extent. A victim is not just the person that is attacked or the person in the trauma, the exact situation trauma. Trauma is deep and it can go for a lifetime. And trauma affects your family, your friends, your neighbors, your community. Mm-hmm. So you have to remember that it, it's it's a huge like you were saying, a ripple effect, mm-hmm. and it lasts a lifetime for people. So you can't just think, oh, the trauma, it's over, it's done. It doesn't work that way. I think that Miracle definitely still has difficulties. We know that as a fact. But I also think that Miracle uses her trauma and her emotion and her passion and her love for her mother to propel her. Forward, oh, yes. And to keep her going and to keep her moving for in a forward direction, no matter what that takes, she's always picking herself back up and moving forward. And we just, we really respect that. Could you imagine if that's your mother or your child or your family member or your spouse? Just think about it that way. Mm-hmm. Think about if this was you, you know, and what you would go through to find justice for your family member. Yeah. We just want to help her to find resolution. This person of interest uh, will be getting out of prison very soon, within the next year. And if this is the correct person, you know, they are obviously in fear of what could happen. And then there could be a totally different suspect here. And I think that's even scarier because that means that we don't know who or where that person is at Someone any given time. Someone in the night. When you think about being scared like talk about you know if you go somewhere and you've seen something or you know you heard something and I know that people it scares them because you don't want to get involved it scares you you don't want to be a part of that but you have to remember someone lost their life violently yes in this and so no one should ever have to lose their life to violence Mm -hmm. You have to remember that, that this is real life and this really happened. This isn't make-believe. This isn't a a movie made for Mm -hmm. TV, a Lifetime movie, Love Lifetime. But We're not sensationalizing this because everything we've told you absolutely happened. 
Um, of course, we're throwing some theories out there and we're telling you right here, they're nothing but theories because this case is cold. That's why we are begging anyone out there, share share this episode. Yes, please. With your friends, share our article. I have an article right up on our website under case files, share the article, you know, just get people talking about this case because you never know who holds the key to solving this. Hi, my name is Alana Keegan Cooper. I'm a victim advocate and uh, a freelance investigative crime journalist. And um, I've been um, aware and uh, of uh, Shauna's case and, and working with her daughter Miracle for uh, a little over a year. Um, so found her her case, uh, doing some research, um, and then reached out to Miracle, and the rest is history. So how did you guys uh, come together? She reached out to me on Facebook. She was researching another crime, and my mom's reached out like kind of came to her attention because she thought that the crime she was working, maybe it was related to hers, uh, quickly found out that it wasn't, but realized that my mother's case was really intriguing and the fact that there were so many things there to solve this case that she really felt strong to, to help advocate for that. And ever since then, it's been one blessing after another. I mean, we're getting closer and closer. What have you been doing on your end? Well, um, it's been it's been a busy year. Um, so, and, you know, it's it's always less than I would like to be doing. You know, there's just there's only so much time. But um, I think the first big step was um, when I talked with Miracle, kind of got like the details, sort of like what was going on with this case. You know, what the status of it was, and then uh, I think the biggest first thing we had to do was get back in contact with detectives because it had been many years since Miracle um, had talked with a detective and she didn't have his phone number anymore. She couldn't like 100% remember his name, but she knew it was at the um, the DA's office. He was an investigator there. So just, you know, some putting some calls in and, and kind of, you know, refiguring out who, who was handling it was one thing. Um, and sometimes that is, that's a big thing of victim advocacy is like just um, opening up communication. Because um, I think communication is just so important for, um, especially for cold cases, but I think for any case. Um, because once you lose that communication or you don't have that person to reach out to or that number anymore, it's just, it's, it's another barrier for getting solved or at least kind of knowing what's going on. So that was a big part. We were able to establish that, talked with um, Detective McCollum, um, and he got him in contact with Miracle, um, gave him her number. And so now they're in a lot more contact, found out if anything new was going on, you know, and some of it has just been kind of, unfortunately, um, not everything goes the way that you think it should go. Um, and there's certain things that you find out and realize later that are, you know, change the circumstances. You know, I would, I was hoping that maybe this case would get, would get prosecuted or start that process by this time this year, but um, it just wasn't, it was just, it was a bit different than what I was originally thinking. So, um, you know, love, would love to see justice done for this case. Um, and I think it's just needs some more help. There's been a lot of like little things and some of it's just Miracle and I like talking about like what our next steps are or what, her, you know, she feels like the direction she needs to go in. There's been a ton since, you know, we've 
come together. Um, we were able to get on the news, so we have a Facebook page. There's so much that has been done since you've you've been involved. Like you guys really seem to be victim centered, and and I know you know I'm friends with um, good friends with Amanda Newland Davis, and I know you guys are gonna. So you come highly recommended from from her, um, just with your professionalism. So yeah, I was about to like reach out. It was just. You know, I was like, oh, in the next week or two, I'm going to see if they're interested. And then you, you beat me to it, which is wonderful. Yeah, because every um, time something would no. happen, I'm I'm telling him and then I'm I'm messaging her. I'm like, yeah. something big happened. And then this time she's like, did this happen? I said, yes, it did. Um, and you guys had, I think Alana was involved in this. You guys started a petition, right? I did. Um, we got a petition going really close to 500 signatures all the I way from it. New York. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, someone in Florida signed it and oh. shared it. Oh, that's cool. just a bunch of people saying, Hey, you guys need to look into this. Yes. Further. She needs justice. Yeah. We need more information. Basically stop. don't stop looking. Exactly. Into this case. Do not give up. And which I've been told that, you know, <laughs> They're not going to work on it. Yeah. It's not going to be a priority for a long time. And if I have this amount of people behind me, then it's going to make a movement. I actually, Miracle, Miracle, she's just, she's had so much initiative with this. She's, she's so strong and um, very creative and um, resilient with all this, you know, um, just throughout the years. So uh, she, she came up with the change.org thing. I didn't have anything to do with it. She's, she's come up with so much. Um, and I, she's just, um, a real inspiration for how, how hard she's worked to get her mom's case where it's at. Detective McCollum has done, uh, more for this case than anybody has in the past combined as far as law enforcement. Um, you know, so it's, it's not a matter of, you know, him personally from my talking with him, I really, I believe he really wants to see this solved. Um, and there's been, it's just, I think, I think he's probably frustrated as well with just, um, like wanting to get it past the finish line. And there's, there's something really disheartening when you're almost there and it's just, it's not, you know, you're just so close. Um, yeah. to that. so, you know, and miracle has just been, she's been pushing and, um, it's not fair that like a family member it's, it's put on their shoulders to help advocate and push their loved one's case forward. But it just, it, from all the, the other families that I've worked with, it, it is, it does unfortunately fall on them to help give things push or to help like communicate or you know get movement in the case and um that's kind of where I came in like a year ago is just to like help with that burden a little bit and help you know do some of the communication things you know and and have that background knowledge too of of um you know who to contact and then you know some techniques or you know and I thought at first when I talked to Miracle too you know we I had I didn't know what the status of the case was so um you know I thought maybe there there could be some I could help increase communication between um you know a lab that maybe offered more advanced testing if DNA testing was a difficulty in this case but um that didn't turn out to be the case so so number one share this episode with your friends with your family um with anyone living in the area you know where this took place well I think you're so right about increasing just people talking about it um you know it can reach other people that might have 
the leads that that we need, you know, to get this case past that finish line, um, you know, and, and prosecuted. So, you know, even just saying like, hey, here's like sharing this episode with friends or like talking like, hey, have you ever heard about this? Um, you know, this case here, because because you guys do have a listenership that, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of them are in Oklahoma. I'm sure there's many that aren't. Um, but especially if you're in Oklahoma or if you have any Oklahoma mm-hmm. ties, it can be so valuable to just to share about this, to even like mention like, hey, have you ever heard of this case that happened in Henrietta? I mean, this is, is a really heinous murder. And I, I guarantee if you're going to ask your friends, they unless they saw the news a few weeks ago, which was like the yeah. first time in a long time, you probably haven't heard about it. And, um, you know, if they're interested in that or um, you never know where things can lead, you know, might be unlikely that, you know, somebody that, you know, might know something about this. But there's never a zero percent chance. Right. There's never a zero percent chance. Yeah. I think it's really important for Henrietta and the surrounding uh, surrounding towns to really come together because I know how it is to live there and live in fear my whole entire life. Mm -hmm. But for them, some of them didn't even know. And for them to now know and know that somebody could be coming back to those streets and now they have a family of their own. I mean, now it's going to affect just more people. We don't mean to sound like overdramatic or anything about it, but like I am, I'm legitimately like, I'm so concerned for like the community, if if you know, I, I just I would love to see this solved before um, you know anybody has a chance to um, potentially be free to commit a crime like this right. again. Because I have serious fears that you know, just looking looking at all the circumstances of the crime and, and everything that I know with it, I personally am, I am concerned about it, and I think that's that's part of why you know there's been more of a push lately between, you know, miracle I know has, has felt the urgency and, and so have I to, you know, just let people know about this case and hopefully that, you know, we can find that lead that we need. Yeah. yeah. I love, I love Mir. She's just, she is such a wonderful person. And, um, I just, you know, and she has so much love for her mom and I think she's her mom from what miracle tells me was a real fighter. She, um, you know, and I think miracle, definitely got that from her you know she fights for for justice and what's right and um she's also just a really lovely person so um just i wonderful for all the support um that she's getting she deserves every bit of it for this case and it's not just for you to hear about it's for someone that knows something yes to help because these cases are not resolved yeah and you know and we always want to advocate especially for people who can't advocate for themselves anymore um people whose voices were literally taken from them and we know that that is a huge part of this is finding the human within this story and showing you that human and saying this person deserved to live could you imagine the pain you would live with without your parent your whole life yeah so, and the fear mm-hmm. that you would have because you don't know who this person is. And if you're they're going to come back at any time. Imagine being a child mm-hmm. and being in fear your whole life. Yeah. Uh, and that that is going to be our motivation 
you know, going forward with all of these cold cases that, you know, we're, we're taking on, especially when we have the ability to put family members on here and let you hear their side of things. Um, because we can sit here and tell you these, you know, these cases all day long and we're pretty good at it. I, I think, I think we're pretty good at it. Um, but hearing it come from one of the people that it affected the most, I think is a different kind of movement, you know, inside of you. It is. And it's, it's, it's heartbreaking to see the pain and the emotions Mm -hmm. that these family members go through. And I, you know, for us and we, we spend a lot of time on these cases. Mm -hmm. We become very involved in these cases and because they're not just a case to us. These are people. Yeah. These are real lives that mattered, that had personalities, Mm -hmm. that had a favorite color, had a favorite food, had a favorite song. These, these are human beings. Yeah. That's the point of this. We're not sitting here, you know, telling you to be an armchair detective. No, but we are sitting here telling you that there are ways to get involved and it could start with simply hitting that share button. Yes. That's being an advocate. Yes. An advocate on your end at home. It's helping us be advocates here because this doesn't work if we don't have listeners. This doesn't work if we don't have people sharing these cases. That's where your part comes in. So, you know, we, we really want you to get involved. Go sign the petitions, you know, that we bring up. Go and share these cases. Share them. I know that there are a ton of, you know, true crime groups that just I'm in. Share them in there. Um, you know, even even if it's not an Oklahoma true crime group, share it in there anyway. You never know who's in there, who's watching. It's you a know. small world. You never know who's a true crime fan that mentions something to their grandma that cracks the cold case. You never know. Help us uh, try to find some justice for Shauna Jones. Yes, please. So we have a, a couple of statements that were written up in order for us to read them on the show. So I have a letter here written by Jessica, which was the babysitter. And I also have a letter here written by Donald Jones, which is Shauna's brother. So I'm going to read the babysitters first. It says, her smile was genuine, loving, and contagious. She was soft and gentle-spoken. She was a beautiful soul. You could see it in her eyes, hear it in her voice. She was fun. I'm sure she had her ups and downs, but I didn't see them. She was always smiling and beaming in my eyes. I only knew her for a short while. I was just a young girl. I babysat her two beautiful girls. She had given me a trust that now as a mother, I understand. I remember the day she asked me to become her babysitter, recommended by my aunt and uncle. She was diligent in asking me questions and being concerned of my age and the possibility of being a bad influence on her girls. Now keep in mind, she knew my family as well, was real friends and co-workers to them. She was loved and trusted by people I knew, so I accepted the challenge, as she called it. During the next few months, I would sit for her regularly on Friday and Saturday and sometimes a few hours in the evening during the week. 
I had to be home by 10 p.m. during the week, and she always had me home when she said she would. Sometimes when she picked me up, her boyfriend was with her, mostly just her, though. Sometimes we'd stop to pick up something to snack on, or a movie to watch, or ice cream sundaes as dessert. The girls and I would play games, dress up, and just be girls. During the time, I had four drop-off destinations, depending on the night. Home, my grandmother's, or one of two of my aunt uncle's houses, who lived side by side. Just before Christmas 1993, Shauna had come a little earlier than normal to pick me up. I remember how excited she was to give me my present, a portable, battery-operated curling iron. She was so excited. She couldn't wait to show me how to use it. She came prepared with a brush and hairspray. She already had put new batteries in it, and she said, all giggly and smiling, go ahead, open it. Here, as she helped me tear open the package, let me show you what it does. She did my bangs right there in the parking lot of my apartment complex. I loved that thing. It went everywhere with me for years, even prom a few years later. On December 31st, 1993, I had been her sitter for a bit now, and this night was fueled by excitement for the new year. We had popcorn, snacks, and sparkling grape juice. We played music, danced, played games, had a huge blowout of exclamations of woohoo, happy new year. Then shortly after, off to bed, I cleaned up as usual. When she returned home with her boyfriend, I thought nothing of it. Like any other night, she told me she was taking me to my aunt's and would be right back. Miracle came in and saw her mom. As I was walking out the door, she told me she was taking me home in the van with all her boyfriend's musical equipment. That night, she pulled into my aunt and uncle's driveway. She said, Happy New Year. See you in a few days. I got inside, looked out the window after the door was locked, and saw her with the inside van light on, waving and smiling, an image I will never forget. I watched her as I turned off the porch light and acknowledged my aunt's you're back from the other room. The next evening, I think maybe 6 p.m., the police had come to my other aunt and uncle's home to speak with me about Shauna and what happened last night. They told us that something had happened to her and they were trying to figure out all the details and needed my statement. My family went to get my mom from across town and my uncle went with me to the police station. Now, here is where I get nervous because I didn't understand a single part of what was happening. I had never been in trouble with the law before. And here the police are asking questions about my whereabouts, checking my clothes, my shoes, my hands, asking me directions of how she drove me to my aunt and uncle's house, what type of relationship I had with her, what her and her boyfriend's appearance and attitude were like, what vehicle she was driving. I answered honest, let them look at my hands, shoes, and clothes from that night, and at this time, I was 14 years old, and something felt really off to me about her boyfriend, the police, their questions, and the public information given in the newspaper in the days to come. Something just did not add up to me. I'm still unsure why. I was young, but I also knew her family. I went to her mother's home. I babysat for her. I cried with and held both of her daughters. I saw firsthand their hurt, pain, and all their hearts breaking. Soon, I kind of fell off into my own whirlwind of emotions. 
kind of just went with the flow of information, lost contact with the girls and family, and after a while started doing my own thing. I rarely saw or conversed with either of her daughters for many years after that. I've seen and heard very little from anyone about the state of Shauna's case until I found Miracle on Facebook. Watching her through the years growing, fighting, struggling, and begging for justice for her mother, I'm very proud of the woman she has become. I know by the very questions I once was asked by Shauna that she too is proud. I prayed for justice for Shauna. I've prayed her daughters who one day have justice that they deserve. Donald Jones January 1st, 1994 is a day that I would love to erase from my memories, but I will remember it forever as one of the worst days of my life. I was out the night before on New Year's Eve, as was many Americans celebrating the new year to come. I was celebrating it with my sister Shauna at the New West Club that she worked at as a bartender and waitress. I remember giving her a kiss on the cheek and a big hug when the clock struck midnight in the new year and telling her that I loved her. We were only 13 months apart in age, and we always had a very, very strong and loving brother-sister relationship. After the club closed at 2 a.m., I somehow made it to my motel room that I was staying in, and I was pretty intoxicated. Everything seemed fine when I left, not knowing the terror that the day would bring. I was at a bad time in my life, where I stayed drunk quite often, but I spent that day resting and recuperating from the night before. It has been so many years ago, and for the life of me, I cannot remember who called me to tell me that my sister was found dead on Bald Knob Hill. At first, I could not believe it, and I damn sure didn't want to believe it. Not my sister. It was impossible. Because I didn't have a vehicle to drive at the time, I ran to Bald Knob Hill from my motel room, still not believing that my sister could be dead. I arrived at the scene and remembered there was a lot of commotion going on and a lot of cops and ambulances, a lot of officials. I didn't know who they were, but they would not let me through. I kept telling them that that was my sister. I had to get through to see her. I had to know what was going on. I have to know how she could possibly have died, but they would not let me through. I will never forget how empty and angry I felt in that moment. I found out that my family was down at the police station, so I ran down there to be with my family, still not believing the scope of what had just happened. I arrived at the police station, and there was my family, and it was at that moment that I realized, once I saw their faces and the tears in their eyes, that yes, my sister had died. It was one of the worst feelings I've ever felt in my life. What were my nieces going to do? Their fathers weren't in their lives, and now their mother is gone. How could this happen? From the beginning and for several years, we were always told that her death was accidental. But we always knew the truth. We always knew that she had been murdered. I just hope that someday and somehow we will find the murderer, and he will pay for what he has done to our family. What he has done to my two young nieces, seven and nine at the time, by taking their mother from them. I will say to my sister, who is watching from above, someday. <clears throat> someday, somehow, the evil person that did this to you will pay. 
I honestly believe that. I love you, sis. I'm gonna stay here and say my last goodbye. Not because of horrible memories. In fact, this is my last place I had good memories of you. But I've got to leave this behind. I'll take the memories of our last hug in front of that front room door. I will take the memories of our last Christmas and the bean bags that me and my sister sat on in the floor of the front room and you were so excited. <laughs> I will take the memory of you getting ready for work and <laughs> listening to music and laughing and playing in your earrings. <laughs> laying on your bed to tighten up your pants because <laughs> you got him starched too much. <laughs> Mom, I love you. <laughs> Goodbye. You've reached the end of our episode. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Join Raven next time on the Sirens Podcast. Do we have an outro? That's our outro, isn't it?